Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. This is for October 2023. We are Volume 120, Number 4. I'm Micah Hill, the Media Editor of Fertility and Sterility. We have the whole crew again this month, Pietro, Eve, and Kurt. Good morning to you all. It's great to see you. Good morning. Good morning. You should all see the smile on our faces uh, looking at each other and all being back together on this Zoom to record this podcast. It's a real treat to be all together virtually. I've missed you all. Missed you guys too. I love it when the whole band's here and it's exciting because next month uh, while this is airing, we will be live at ASRM recording podcasts and journal clubs. So we look forward to seeing you all there as well. And I want to introduce our listeners to Dr. Adriana Wong, who is the new producer of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Adriana, say hi to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Adriana Wong, and I'm a first-year REI fellow at the University of Southern California in LA. I grew up in LA originally, so I'm so happy to be back after a detour at the University of Miami for medical school and UC Davis for OBGYN residency. And I'm so excited to be the new producer of this podcast and to be part of the FNS team. So thank you, everyone, for the warm welcome. I can't wait to meet you all in person at ASRM. Thank you, Adriana, for making us sound good. It's all up to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Adriana was a longtime listener, now gets to see how the sausage gets made behind the scenes. And let me tell you, it is not glamorous work. She makes us look really good. Well, we're happy to have you, and we will be honoring Dr. Michael Simone, who's been producing this podcast for the first three years uh, at the ASRM meeting. But we're glad to have you, and welcome. So there's a lot of material in the October edition of FNS. We're going to jump right in. The uh, Views and Reviews this month is by editorial editor Peter Schlegel, and as a reproductive urologist, he's talking about sperm quality and how it affects outcomes. He's brought together a powerhouse group of four authors. The first is Dr. Lamb, who talks about semen parameters and their prediction of pregnancy. Uh, Dr. Maranauer, looking at DNA fragmentation, its interaction with female factors. Dr. Z, looking at specifically PLC Zeta and its effect, and can we rescue that in the IVF laboratory? And then Dr. Zaninovich, who's an expert on AI, talking about the use of AI and its future potential to help us select sperm. Overall, it's a very interesting article. I'm always drawn, or series of articles, I'm always drawn to anything on DNA fragmentation. It's a fascinating area to me that has a lot of potential, but also a lot of risk for abuse as an add-on, I think. And uh, this specific article overviews the evidence that seems on whole, at least from the meta-analyses that are out there, to show that increased DNA fragmentation is associated with poor ART outcomes, including an increased risk of miscarriage and, and poor blastocyst development. It does seem to be mitigated by younger eggs, so younger, higher-quality oocytes seem to have less of an impact with high DNA fragmentation than poor older oocytes, but we don't really have great interventions for it. And so the AUA and ASRM uh, currently don't recommend DNA fragmentation as first-line testing, but this can leave patients in a bind because if they have one of these bad outcomes and then you go back and test it, they're going to want to know why you didn't test it up front. But part of the problem is we have a negative association, but what do we do about it? Are you going to recommend donor egg to get a younger, healthier egg that can handle that DNA fragmentation? Are you going to recommend a testie for the guy, so surgery on the testicles to get sperm that's not exposed to the ejaculatory tract and maybe that uh, free radical exposure? Are you going to try vitamins? We know from some of the trials, at least on a population level, that doesn't seem to help. Uh, are you going to do things like shorter ejaculatory intervals? Uh, so we have associations, but not good evidence. So I enjoyed that review. I still struggle with what we actually do with that clinically and hope that people are working on trials to show us that this association can actually turn into an intervention that can benefit patients. Any thoughts on that? Otherwise, I highly recommend that you uh, read that Views and Reviews by Dr. Schlegel. Yeah, Mike, it brings up what we talked to about a lot, which is we all understand it intuitively that it's a problem. Yet we don't seem to have a lot of tools other than offering it so you don't get accused of not offering it. Problem with our field is that we, there are certain things we have to do, even though we know they don't work very well. 
And if we just took a step back, could we come up with a better way to figure out who are the men most at risk for having abnormal DNA fragmentation and screen them for abnormal DNA fragmentation? Just doesn't make sense for us to screen everyone across the board, semen analysis and DNA fragmentation results. But what are our thresholds where we really should be digging further and then seeing if that group of men has the biggest opportunity to improve their outcomes with some of these selection methods? Yeah, I would say that's the approach that we commonly use is in those males or in those couples who have poor blastocyst development. Those are the ones where we really start to think about more of the impact of DNA fragmentation. As we know that the embryonic genome is activated around day three, that conversion to blastocyst can often be a sign of poor fragmentation or high fragmentation. And so I think a more targeted and thoughtful approach is warranted, and we often will potentially see an association there. We've had cases where we've had zero blast development repeatedly and then have gotten testicular sperm and have seen marked improvement. So I, I think that perhaps in a limited population, you might see better outcomes. And then, Eve, that segues next into our fertile battle, which is one that you put together as an editorial editor. And you seem to have the pulse on hot genetic topics in our field. Uh, one you did last year was on PGTP uh, and a fertile battle. And this month, you're doing CRISPR and the pros and cons of CRISPR. And you have a, a very great group of authors. You have Dagan Wells and uh, Kutluk Akte on the pro side and Nada Kubiavoka and David Keefe on the con side. And overall, both the pros and cons seem to come to the same conclusion. We're probably going to use it. We probably should use it. There's probably benefit, but there's a whole lot of um, landmines and things we have to be really, really careful of. And you summarize those in your introduction, the off-target effects, potential for mosaicism, which has been uh, reported, and damage uh, not off-target, but even around that specific target. So near-target maybe effects. What was the biggest takeaway that you got from reading these four experts? You know, I think when I first started thinking about this fertile battle, um, I was much more on the con side. I'm like, why would we do this? We have PGT. And I think my biggest takeaway after really thoughtfully thinking about it in a lot of depth is it probably will have wonderful potential, especially in those poor responders where you just don't get enough embryos in order to select the right embryo. And so I think that the field is probably moving in that direction. And I think that it's a powerful tool to affect change, again, in a limited population of patients, but one that I think does carry great potential. So not ready, but we're getting closer. Eve, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't think I, I followed you. You think it's going to be used in people that have few embryos or people that are used only and used that have a lot of embryos to choose from? No, I actually think in few embryos. So in patients who have a lot of embryos to choose from, you can do PGT, classic PGT. You can transfer an unaffected embryo. But for those patients who are poor responders, I'm coming to mind and thinking of a lot of my BRCA patients who have near ovarian failure or patients who have fragile X who are poor responders. And all you have is one embryo or two embryos. And when those embryos return from testing as affected, now we have a tool where we can potentially edit that embryo and eliminate the germline mutation. So in patients who are good responders, PGT is an effective tool to select the best embryo. In patients who are poor responders, where you have one embryo and that embryo is affected, then potentially you could use CRISPR on that embryo to edit the, the single gene disorder. So as a last resort, if you will. Yes. Eve, what surprised me the most um, was what you said in your intro. There's over 100 clinical trials already registered and, and ongoing, most of them phase one, but some even phase two and phase three. I, I had not stayed up on it enough over the last year or two to realize that there were that many number of trials in addition yeah, to people not, outside not of clinical in our trials. Field, right. <laughs> not in reproductive medicine, but in right. the arena of cancer and, and other specialties. So I think that this is going to become a reality at some point. And I think that, again, the careful, mindful, thoughtful usage of this technology really has powerful potential to change lives. Yeah, but it really is a big debate just to say it out loud, that there's a really big difference between fixing a somatic cell in a human body that's defective and trying to fix an embryo in an embryonic stage with a lot of unknown long-term consequences of that. 
again, I'm not against the technology. I think it needs to be done and studied and, and really understood. But I just don't want to make it so simple as like you've got to, you can fix, um, you know, X genome and everything else is fine. It really has a long way to go. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I actually want to highlight the con side, which was written by Nada Kubakovic and David Keefe, who did a beautiful job explaining each and every pitfall and why it's not so simple. What are the complications? What are the potential downstream effects? And they really outline the challenges to get to that place. Did they talk at all about the mishap in China? Um, the one case that was there, I, I don't recall how old the, the children are at this point, but what, what was the anecdote that we learned from that? Yeah, it's definitely talked about. I don't want to spoil the whole article, so I'm going to tell the listeners to go ahead and read it. The pro site actually opens with that case. It's now five years old. They don't give us updates on those children, but they basically say we all agree this was unethical. And then they basically say, so now we have a thousand words left to give our pro side. So we should just stop here and, you know, it's kind of, kind of tongue in cheek. And then they go into why, why they think we should get there, but how these people have, some people have definitely done it the wrong way, uh, which get, gets back to all the significant risks you're talking about, Kurt. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we talked about it now, but the intricacies are important, but you really, we really need to know as REIs what's happened in the world and then where we stand. And this is not as simple as we have a genetic technique that can fix something. There really are some huge issues that we should all be aware of. I was at a meeting recently in Napa Valley where people were talking about technology in our field, and there was a company there presenting on gene editing in embryos. And they've been doing all this wonderful research on mouse embryos, and we're kind of getting ready to start to translate it into human embryos. And I think they quickly realized, oh my God, there's a lot of human variability when you try to make human embryos. They don't always come out mature. They don't always fertilize. They don't always progress to blastocyst. And they were dealing with a very infinite supply of mouse embryos. And it was pretty easy. They could do a lot of studies at scale and kind of get predictable results. And the minute you threw in just regular old biologic human variability, kind of threw them for a loop a little bit. So I think a lot of these companies that are trying to advance this science in our field are going to quickly realize on the other end of it is the human with variability. And some of this stuff can be really hard, even when the science all works very well. I, the first thing that Jerry Strauss told me when I became a fellow in REI, Jerry, who did a lot of molecular research, is, Kurt, just remember, a mouse is not a human. So thank you, Eve, for another uh, wonderful, fertile battle. I highly recommend our listeners all go to that. I'm going to go a little bit uh, off order here because we have a theme in the journal this month around the future of REI training, which is something that I know is near and dear to everyone on this podcast. Uh, and so I'm going to start with uh, our inkling from editorial editor Eric Widra and actually one of my fellows at the NIH, Marja Brolinson, REI training, how long is long enough? And Eric basically argues that most of the people in his generation train two years, uh, and they obviously feel like they're doing pretty well. They're the leaders in our field. They're leaders academically. They're leaders in private practice and growing the industry as a whole. And so it's interesting when you talk to people who train under the two-year model that there's a, a pretty big disagreement between them. Uh, a lot of them feel that going to three years has been better, especially because it teaches us uh, to do research, to understand research, and as a whole has probably had a very productive influence on our field uh, that's highly technologically dependent. But Eric argues that uh, two years is reasonable to train most people who are going to do ART for their career. Most REIs do mostly uh, ART. I think this is going to be a very controversial view, and we'll get to the white paper here from SREI, ASRM, and SART in, in just a minute. Then I'll go jump to the end of the journal because there's a letter to the editor. So back in the spring, another editorial editor, Nanette Santoro, uh, argued the opposite, that we should not drop to two years and really argues uh, what I talked about, you know, REI is complex, there's embryology, there's genetics, there's all these things that we need to know, including research, and we can't do that well in two years. And if we just become, you know, to use a pejorative term, egg suckers, um, you know, we're doing a disservice to our trainees. This resulted in a letter from uh, Dr. Moness and Mary from Rejuvenating Fertility Clinic in SUNY Downstate in New York. And they argue the ethical principles support that we should be training more people, mainly to access care and provide more care to more patients. And Dr. Santoro has a reply that uses those same ethical principles to argue the exact opposite. And so it's, uh, again, there's not consensus on this. Pietro, I will set that up as the intro into what you're gonna talk to us about, which is the white paper from SREI on the future of REI. 
here's your uh, non-traditional article alert. If you're trying to read something really cool and different in fertility and sterility, this is it. This is kind of a paper that comes out of left field, but an important and a timely one. Written by my old residency classmate and groomsman at my wedding, Dr. Eduardo Harriton, who's at the Reproductive Science Center in the Bay Area with senior author, Dr. Kate Devine, as well as if you kind of just scan the middle uh, authors, just some luminaries in our field, leaders, program directors, and our very own Micah Hill. We'll tap into at the end here to kind of add his two cents. Um, the article is entitled uh, Meeting the U.S. Demand for Fertility Services, Present and Future of REI in the United States. The authors start off plainly stating what the problem is, and there are three major things facing our field. One, there's a suboptimal number of REIs now and in the foreseeable future. There's an inadequate number of embryologists and laboratory scientists. And three, there's a geographic maldistribution and poor financial coverage for fertility services in the United States. Now, since they've stated the problem, they also back it up with some math. And this is where I think the article is really fun, um, kind of contextualizes this problem for us. There are about 140 million children that were born worldwide in 2021. It's a lot of kids. And if we assume a 9 to 10% rate of infertility, there's probably another 12 to 13 million more families that might have a child if treatment were available to them. And once we factor in some more math, like the prevalence of recurrent miscarriage, the rate of genetic preventable birth defects, 5% of LGBTQ families, the potential number of desired but currently unfulfilled births per year is likely to be way in excess of that 12 to 13 million. And in the United States, that looks like 800,000 babies in the U.S. alone. So how many IVF babies do you think are born in the United States each year? 100,000. We have 100,000 IVF babies born in the United States each year. So 800,000 is almost tenfold higher our current rate. And this is kind of the unfulfilled need in the United States. And let's contextualize this to our workforce. So the current workforce in the United States, how many REIs do we think we have in the United States that are actively practicing? About 1,200. It's 1,250. Eve has clearly also read the article. And of those 1,250 practicing REIs in the United States, they're managing right around 290,000 IVF cycles each year, which translates to a pretty small number. It's only 233 cycles per REI annually. And to meet that demand of 800,000 babies that have the potential to be born with our assistance, each REI would have to be managing nearly 1,600 ART cycles unless we increase the workforce uh, or increase ways to get more patients into care in kind of creative and non-unique ways. Part of the bottleneck is we just don't have a lot of REIs. We only train about 50 to 60 each year. The numbers largely remain stable over many decades. There are many great reasons for this that the paper really digs into and does an awesome job of marching out for the reader. So go look there for the details. But one of the big ones is that we just don't have enough spots for everyone who wants to be an REI. The match rate hovers around 70% and has so for the last many years. That means that on average, there's about 20 extra people each year that program directors by and large think are qualified and capable of completing a fellowship and passing a board exam that we just don't have spots for. These extra 20 people, we could be training each year and they're already kind of built into the match system so we don't have to go looking for them. There's a great discussion in this paper on kind of the potential solutions for increasing REI fellowship spots that I encourage everyone to read if you're in the private sector or the academic sector. There's, there's, there's a lot in here for all of us. The paper also discusses other ways to increase access, not just fellowship programs, um, advanced practice providers, ultrasonographers, and even using general OBGYNs that are trained in reproductive care. I want to highlight here, the authors are very clear that they do not support non-REI physicians in managing ART programs, managing ART treatment, or even performing retrievals or embryo transfers. They think that this is still fundamentally in the purview of the subspecialty trained REI but kind of a hot topic that we've kind of talked about on this podcast before and at our meetings recently. And finally, there's one little section that I think Eduardo probably snuck in because it's a passion project for him, but I think deserves a lot more attention. Um, they talk about the role of technology um, and how to maximize the existing workforce. And in my opinion, this is a whole article in and of itself. There's so much great tech that's coming out that can make our jobs a little easier and remove some um, excess decision-making or even faulty decision-making using decision support tools. Mike, I want to ask you to chime in on this article since you were one of the authors and obviously have had many leadership positions within the society. And this was a paper that was commissioned um, to be written. Tell us a little bit more about kind of the impetus for this article and, and how it came together. 
Sure. So two years ago at ASRM, we had our SREI board meeting and it was Ruben Alvaro's last day as president of SREI. And his last act was just, you know, laying out the challenges, um, the market forces, the success we've had at expanding coverage for ART, but uh, yet not it being anywhere close to the demand. Uh, and while cycle numbers have doubled or even tripled over the last 20 years, we really haven't changed the number of fellows we're graduating. It's been a relatively stable number. And so he felt like we needed to have a task force to have a voice, like SREI should not be silent on this issue. We shouldn't let market forces, venture capital, other things drive this. It should be driven by us. I think we have the best perspective on how to take care of our patients. And so uh, he named it the future of REI task force, and it took them a year to come up with the plan, which was to write this white paper. And then they wrote it. The task force had over 25 people. Uh, the SREI board looked at it. We took it to the program directors three or four different times at town halls. As you can imagine, uh, you know, they're the primary people who have an interest and a stakeholders in this. And so we really wanted their buy-in. Uh, and then the boards of ASRM, SART, and SREI are reviewing it over the last six months. A lot of debate over the wordsmithing. Would we recommend exploring in a controlled fashion to your fellowships. And we decided, no, at this point, we don't want to do that. We want to focus on expanding the number of fellowships that we have and expanding the spots that we have in already existing fellowships. Usually that issue is funding because we have a lot of programs that have the volume and the research capacity to train more fellows. It's funding. I had an interesting talk with the leaders of the Gynological uh, Oncology Society, and they took an interesting approach. They didn't have a program in Georgia. So they lobbied the state legislature and basically said, we have inferior outcomes for our GYN cancer patients for women in the state of Georgia because we can't get people to come here to big cities like Atlanta because they're training elsewhere. And so the state actually funded their fellowship and it's over a million dollars a year. Uh, it's just a light item on the budget that's approved every year. So they use the creative way to try to get funding. And so I think we need to explore those options first. I know there are program directors who are interested in exploring in a robust fashion, two-year fellowships, but at this point, uh, that that wasn't endorsed. Ruben Alvaro calls this the most peer-reviewed paper he's ever done. It's had, like I say, over 100 people that read it and gave input uh, and a lot of effort. I think the key is uh, what Ruben said at the end. The white paper is a discussion point. Uh, it's There's not actually anything that's happened because of this. It's meant to generate discussion, and it's done a lot of that, as we can see by the uh, inklings that our editorial editors have had passionate on two different perspectives. So I hope that this starts conversation and now we actually see action because if we don't take action, other people will take action for us. So it's our job as REIs to be the voice and now take action. This is an open call for people who do read this article and want to chime in, push back, um, support, thought. feel free to submit a letter to the editor. If you have kind of longer format piece that you want to talk about, feel free to submit something to consider this. We'd love to share a diversity of opinions on this topic because we know it can be controversial. It doesn't necessarily need to be, um, but we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I just want to shout out to Amanda Adelier, who was first author on another piece addressing workforce challenges that came out in the 13th edition of fertility and sterility from this past year. So just another voice talking about some of the challenges in the field. What I will say, and I want to just say this as wearing my program director hat, is I think that the issue of needing more REIs and the issue of length of fellowship training are actually two totally separate issues. And I don't think that shortening the fellowship will lead to an increase in REI spots, at least within an academic sector. I'm not proposing any solutions, but I just want to say that those are really like two totally separate issues. And while I don't disagree that we spend so much time in training, I actually think perhaps we could shorten medical school, perhaps combining with university like they do in the rest of the world, or track OBGYN residency to be three years or two years. But I think that where you're going to spend the rest of your life in this field, which is highly complex and multifactorial and many faceted, I wouldn't want to skimp on that training. But I do think that training in other places can and should be shortened. You can have obstetrics, Eve. I'll give it back to you. <laughs> I mean, I did a thousand ish deliveries as a resident. And I think that if there were better tracking for GYN, for those of us that are interested in a GYN subspecialty, then you can streamline training at an earlier level. I agree training is too long. And that's where a lot of my own research on women in medicine, problems of infertility, family building career trajectories, and all of those I think are problematic because we are spending so many years in training. But I would argue that these three years are the most critical piece of our training and shouldn't be shortened. 
but yet we can shorten less critical pieces in our training at earlier stages. I, I can't help but jump in on this debate. Market forces shouldn't be driving what the correct training is. I agree with Eve that, that they're two different issues, but I, I would also argue that our REI training is different or should be overhauled. I'm not sure it's too short. I just think it's not in the right areas. And we, we are far more complex in REI than we are today than we were when I was a fellow. We just talked about CRISPR. We just talked about genetics. We talked about running programs, changing it to two years just to get more hands to do egg retrievals. This is the wrong idea. Having said that, though, I agree. Maybe we need to figure out how training is different and better. But I'll leave you with the analogy. If you thought we needed more pilots because we didn't have enough pilots, is the answer short in the training? I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. So I'll let that go with you as, as you will right there. Touche. I like that one. That's a good one. The whole point of this article is to start a conversation and we've had that here and I think it's going to continue, but I had not heard that analogy, Kurt. I think we all appreciate that one. It's insightful. So Kurt, we're sticking with you. We're going on to the seminal contribution as we get into our first science articles. Tell us about uh, response to anastrozole in men. Yeah, so, so we, we started with the theme of male factor with the views and reviews, and I'm, I'm glad this paper was put through at this time, and it could be a seminal contribution in FNS. Um, it's a straightforward paper. It'll teach um, the REIs a lot and uh, in, in terms of uh, messaging, and um, it'll also help the reproductive urologists with some specifics. The paper is called Testosterone and Luteinizing Hormone Predict Semen Parameter Improvement in Infertile Men Treated with Anastrozole. It's by a large group. Brian Nielts is the first author, and Scott Lundy is the senior author. It's out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and UCLA. The idea is that it's a very common problem that we have many men with idiopathic infertility, if you will, um, a, a mild change in their sperm parameters where they're defined by WHO as not being normal, but they don't really have anything correctable or abnormal about their physical exam or lab tests. A lot of people now, and I, this goes back 20, 30 years, I can remember people talking about this is, you know, can we treat men with anastrozole, just like we do with women, um, that we can uh, affect the uh, hypothalamic testosterone axis, use the feedback, temporarily block testosterone production, therefore you have a, a feedback with increased LH and FSH, hopefully driving the process. This is a common treatment. We could debate on you know, how long and when, but this paper basically doesn't say, does it work? It's basically saying, who does it work in? So this is a cohort study of 90 men um, that are well characterized, and it basically says um, they were treated pragmatically by their physicians. It's not um, it's not a standardized uh, you know dosing protocol, and they basically said who did it work in and who did it not work in, and let's look at those and say what factors predict who there's a response. You start with the hypothesis that they thought low estrogen levels and low gonadotropin levels would be the predictors, and they basically looked at the, the differences between responders and non-responders. By the way, about half of the men responded, about 47%. And response means that they changed their category on the WHO category up a notch, if you will. Very few people went to normal spermia. It was more of a question of, did you just improve your parameters? By the way, I can't, I'm remiss, I had to say this. So the, the dose was around three milligrams a week. It took me a while to figure out what three milligrams a week was. Um, so it's a, it's basically a constant um, dose, but a little bit high, a lot higher dose than we would give our patients for ovulation induction. And the average treatment was around 90 days. What they found was that there were a couple parameters that were predictive, and we might have guessed them. So um, the testicular size was predictive. Uh, the underlying count was predictive. But the hormones basically boiled down to the lower gonadotropins were better, but the most predictive was the testosterone LH ratio. If that ratio is very high. So basically, it's giving you parameters of saying, you know, not everyone can be treated with an astrozole, um, but these are the people that can. Some of it was pretty intuitive to me, and some of it was not. The intuitive aspects of it were not everybody works. They didn't prove their hypothesis that it works better in obese men, but that's still a hypothesis because of potential changes in the, the hypothalamus and pituitary for obese men. And it basically says it works in some people, and let's try to find out who. So the bottom line is nicely done statistical study that um, takes a very straightforward question and gives us some potentially valuable predictive information. Now that I said that, and I applauded the methodology, I'm wondering how it's going to translate into practice. Is somebody really going to do a testosterone you know, LH ratio and say, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't meet the cutoff, you can't have the drug. But it is still interesting to know. 
you're right. Human behavior predicts that we're probably going to give it a go anyway. It's not expensive, not terribly harmful, and it may help, right? That sounds familiar. Yeah. But it took that age-old question and added some sophisticated parameters to it and taught me a little bit more about the hypothalamic axis that I hadn't remembered in a while for men. Cool thing about this study, uh, Scott Lundy's a, a friend of mine. He was telling me that the, the whole idea behind the study was they want to put together a proof of concept for a consortium for male reproductive research. And this was kind of their first foray in, can we get two big tertiary academic medical centers to agree on something and do it well? And they're up to eight centers, and I think you're going to start to see more science like this that kind of answers some very pertinent clinical questions done elegantly with strong methodology um, and hopefully gives us some new avenues for therapy for these men. From an editor-in-chief point of view, I will say that I really enjoyed this paper because it went beyond just the normal cohort. It wasn't just here are my two groups and here are the differences. It shows you the differences and then modeled them quite extensively, which was nice to see, and that it ends up with not only just a significant p-value, but an area under the curve. So this is really a model of how your paper should be written. Um, it's going beyond the traditional, I found a difference in two groups. There's also a nice table in it that doesn't just show aggregate, the, the two populations improve their, their, their sperm count by 2 million. It actually has a nomogram that says, here are how many people went from normal to abnormal, how many people went up that thing. And that's the real reality of everything. Not everybody behaves in a mean, um, and it shows you that, um, you know, how people change levels in a nice color figure that you might want to take a look at. Kurt, I had a nerdy question for you. Their, their cohorts are th based on their outcomes, right? It's you responded or you didn't respond, and then they look back in time at exposures. Is that really a case control study looking for exposures based upon the outcomes, or, or is it a cohort? I know it doesn't change anything on the value of the study. It's just how we label it. I was curious your thoughts on that as our resident expert. Yeah, that, 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 that's loosely defined. Um, they, they defined a cohort as, you know, we found a group of men who took the medication um, and that was the people that I followed um, going forward. Uh, and therefore, I but I but you're right, they did divide it on response, which is an outcome. So, you know, it's it's loose there how people do that. I, I didn't find that offensive, but you're right, it's technical, not correct. Great. Thank you. Now we're going to move on to um, the AI section of the journal in our original articles. And I have a paper looking at uh, morphokinetics. Uh, another one of my areas of interest, as well as DNA fragmentation, just a, an area of the literature that I find fascinating. So this is called the Association Between a Morphokinetic Ploidy Prediction Model Risk Score and Miscarriage and Live Birth, a Multicenter Cohort Study. Uh, senior author Thomas Bramford, or sorry, first author Thomas Bramford, and senior author Ari Kumarasame uh, from a group in the UK, a multicenter study. So this was a cohort study. Uh, using a model that they had already developed that looks at morphokinetics, 22 different morphokinetic features. It tries to predict ploidy status. In their original paper, uh, they use this model to divide embryos into tertiles of high risk, mid risk, and low risk for aneuploidy. And now they took this model and uh, applied it to a new data set of retrospective data that they had. These are unbiopsied embryos now that they're applying this model to, and again, trying to see if it actually helps predict uh, miscarriage and live birth. The interesting question I'm going to ask you guys at the end comes down to this, and they say this in their intro. When you apply age to these models, it's such a overpowering variable that anything else they put in just washes out. And essentially, the morphokinetics don't matter. So they do two models. One is the prefer that uses morphokinetics and clinical data, including age, to model this with a multi-level um, multi modeling, mixed effects so they can control for patients and clustering of a patient's embryos. Uh, and then they do one that just uses the morphokinetics without the clinical data, without age. And we'll talk about what we think about that at the end. So what did they find when they applied this evidence or this model to... Uh, a new group of 3,400 single embryo blastocyst transfers that were untested. Overall, when they did this, they found that the model that used the clinical data as well as uh, the morphokinetic information from time-lapse was able to predict miscarriage risk. So if you were a high risk of having an aneuploid embryo, those miscarried 22% of the time, almost a quarter of the time. If you were moderate or low risk, it was 14 and 12%, so about half. Live birth was only 34% if the model said you were at a high risk of aneuploidy. It was 49 and 53% in the uh, middle and low risk groups. So if we include age, we're able to predict miscarriage, especially in the high aneuploidy risk group. 
not so much of a discriminator between the mid and the low risk. When we drop age out, the model was no longer able to predict miscarriage. Miscarriage was 16, 14, and 17%. And again, remember, the, this whole model is designed to predict aneuploidy. That's what it was trained upon. So it really should be able to predict live birth. So if you were high risk without including age, you had a 38% live birth, and then 59 or 49 and 50%. So overall, they conclude that we should drop age out of these models. And the, the reason they say that is we're talking about an individual patient's embryos, right? And the clinical utility of using this to help grade or rank those embryos into a trans category, first to transfer, second to transfer. We can't change the patient's age. So including age in the model doesn't actually help us. On the other side, I could say if we add age in and we don't change the model whatsoever, is our model doing anything to us? And they show it nicely in a table uh, where they put age and they put their two models together and age alone performs just as well as either of their time-lapse models. So one could also argue that it's not actually giving us anything additive. So I was curious to this group's response to that. Um, is this showing that we should drop age out of these models and maybe there is some value to using morphokinetics to try to predict ploidy or is it just showing us it's a wash, it's almost a coin flip and just patient age alone is enough? What I hear you saying, Micah, is that aneuploidy is not correlated with morphology. So, so really what they're saying is, is age predicts um, miscarriage or aneuploidy and therefore miscarriage. And independent of that, looking at the embryo really doesn't help us. Yeah. And their first study did show that it was correlated, that their model was correlated with aneuploidy. But now in this validation study, you're right. It's essentially almost saying it's not. And Which I think is why through validation studies, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think where I struggle with this is, and we've been saying this all along, that implantation, you have aneuploid embryos that implant, and you have aneuploid embryos that go on to deliver at term, and you have aneuploid embryos that make it beyond the second trimester. And so... Yes, some aneuploid embryos don't implant and some stop growing and developing early. But to think that you can look at an embryo in the six, seven, eight cell stage and predict aneuploidy, I'm just not certain that we're looking at the right thing. And I think that this validation study really sort of lends credence to that, that age, and, and I say this again and again, like age is queen and age is really going to predict aneuploidy more so than you can look at morphokinetics. I understand that if you're looking at it on an embryo by embryo basis and you have a large cohort of euploid embryos that have been tested, that maybe morphokinetics might help you to select the best embryo of that cohort, but that is not what this study says or what this study shows. Micah, how much of this do you think is the kind of the, the newer understanding that not every euploid embryo is created equal and euploid embryos coming from 42-year-olds are not as good as euploid embryos coming from 32-year-olds and 22-year-olds? Curious your thoughts. We've seen some papers on this recently and uh, euploidy doesn't trump age. Uh, age is queen, I think, to, to Eve's point. Yeah, it's a great question, Pedro. I, I certainly do think that the recent evidence shows us that euploid success does drop with age. It's not as big as untested drop in success with age, but it still is there. How much that affects this model, I'm not sure. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. That's a good question. Yeah. Another way of saying that is Eve's age is queen. Isn't that age is queen only because of aneuploidy? Age is queen for lots of reasons, right? So admittedly, aneuploidy is probably the driver, but um, but you can't discount, you know, you can't make a woman younger, as, as we often say in the clinic. Right? The mitochondria. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's to good, and we reviewed this just a few podcasts ago, but, and I think it's more subtle, right? So we still saw sustained implantation rates of over 50% in the older patients compared to, I think it was 55%. So the drop is real, but it's subtle. Aneuploidy is certainly the largest contributing factor, but organelles, mitochondria, other cellular machinery really also impact that sustained implantation rate. But again, with this paper, I mean, what they're showing is that you really can't predict sustained implantation, ongoing pregnancy and miscarriage by looking at morphokinetics. And I think if you think about the biologic plausibility of it, it makes perfect sense because we wouldn't have aneuploid embryos that continue to grow and develop if that were true. If you don't mind, I want to take this article in another direction for just a second. This was a really well done, large scale study. Really pleased that it was published in Fertility and Serility and we can find the time to talk about it. But it also shows us what it means to validate AI generated models. It's 
I'm not saying it's bad science to be the first to generate a model in the subject, but, but it's just not sure that's the truth until you put it into real world and validate it again. So while we can debate and have debated on whether fertility and sterility should only publish the validation studies or whether we should publish the first model ever created, the point is the first model has value, but isn't always worked out to be true. And we, we sometimes jump on that first information as truth, gospel, you know, we don't hear the second part. Um, there's a there's an axiom in, in statistics that we, or actually in, in social media, that you remember the first thing you hear and you don't want to be corrected. So everyone thinks that morphokinetics is an AI-generated solvable problem, whereas this paper is telling us the opposite. Probably this paper is going to get a lot less press than the first model that said, I can predict which embryos result in success. So um, anyway, that's just my pontification uh, that we obviously need both scientific approaches, but I hope that people read this one also. Yeah, and I think it speaks to a point that came up in discussion just the other day in terms of what do we want to publish? And I think that this is a really good example of what we want to publish. We want not just the model has been developed and here's the algorithm and here's the secret formula that we came up with, but they took it a step further and they said, not only did we develop this algorithm, but now we're going to work with nine clinics across the UK, look at thousands of patients, and we're going to test that same algorithm to see if it actually works. And so it really is that validation piece of it, which I think is what makes it such an excellent study. Right. The, the analogy on an analogy is that, you know, we also publish cohort studies, knowing that they're not always the truth. And it's the large randomized trial that should be driving practice. So this is the randomized trial equivalent of AI. It's Excellent. I love that discussion. Overall, for me, it just affirmed my current stance on time-lapse. A really cool technology. We learn a lot from it. I still don't see the clinical utility of it based upon the cost, but maybe someone will crack that code. That would be great. Eve, we're jumping to assisted reproduction, and you're going to teach us about inequities and IUIs. What's up with that? Yeah, this is a great article, and I think it it complements nicely our earlier discussion on the unmet need of the infertile population. So this paper is titled Reproductive Inequity and Inferior IUI Outcomes in Patients with Limited English Proficiency, a Retrospective Cohort Study. And this was done with first author Megan Jane and senior author Michelle Goldsammer from Albert Einstein Montfiore Medical Center in New York. The objective of this study was to evaluate if language preference influences IUI outcomes. And limited English proficiency, or LEP, has been implicated in adverse events and adverse outcomes and is more likely to be associated with significant harm. And specifically, in the field of OBGYN, language preference has been shown to influence the rates of cesarean section in PrimeP patients. Several studies in the field of infertility have shown that patients of lower socioeconomic status and those who have immigrant status have a longer duration of infertility prior to seeking treatment. And so with all of that, they took that background and they did a retrospective cohort study, and it was done at their center from January 2016 to August of 2021. And what they looked at was the duration of infertility before the initial infertility evaluation, and then they looked at success rates with ovarian stimulation and IUI. And the authors hypothesized that they would find both a longer duration of infertility and a lower clinical pregnancy rate with initial IUI in this population. So they just looked at that first IUI that was performed, and then cumulative IUI success was a secondary outcome. Patients with limited English proficiency were identified as those who preferred, whose preferred language was any language other than English. They looked at sociodemographic and clinical characteristics. They were summarized and tested for differences for language by using chi-square and t-tests. And then they did some unadjusted and adjusted odds ratios and 95% confidence intervals using logistic regression. They used Kaplan-Meier estimators to estimate the mean and median duration of infertility before seeking treatment. There were 406 participants in the study. 
Of these 406, 86% preferred English, 7.6% preferred Spanish, and 5.2% preferred other languages, which included French, Hindi, Bengali, Mandarin, and Urdu. And the main findings were that the duration of infertility before seeking initial evaluation or significantly different by language preference. And looking at it more in more depth, the English proficient patients had a mean duration of two plus minus 1.5 years compared to 4.5 plus minus 3.65 years. So in other words, patients whose preferred language is not English spent on average two and a half years longer attempting conception prior to seeking help. Not surprisingly, and a little bit more on this later, initial IUI outcomes were worse in patients with limited English proficiency. Only two of 51 patients achieved pregnancy on that first IUI compared to 37 of 355. So cumulatively, English proficient patients were significantly more likely to achieve pregnancy by their final IUI attempt with a clinical pregnancy rate of 22% compared to 15%. And patients with limited English proficiency had higher rates of treatment dropout as well. When I look at these data, to me, I think the key point is really the longer duration of infertility and the rest kind of follows from there. I think that we can explain the low IUI success rate purely by this. As we all know, it's unlikely that after a four-year duration of infertility, that IUI would be successful. So it's really that longer duration of infertility. They're choosing suboptimal treatment in that population and not surprisingly seeing a lower likelihood of success. And so I think it's a really interesting study and I commend the authors on it. And I think to our earlier point about needing to broaden our access to care, I strongly think that we need to find better ways to improve access to care and break down language and cultural barriers. Micah, Kurt, Pietro, what do you think? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from the way that you did, that maybe the it all starts with just the longer duration of infertility. And so now we've selected for patients who might need more aggressive, just they've naturally selected out because patients with unexplained or other things maybe just got pregnant on their own uh, while they were waiting for that time. So I hadn't thought about that as an actual confounder, but confounding was just the, the main thing I was trying to get to. I know they adjusted for race, ethnicity, but are there potential other confounders that contribute to this outside of just the the language that they speak? Is there lang- is the language they speak associated with with other factors that might affect that? And that's hard to know. Um, but I I liked this study. I, I we still have such an issue with access to care and disparities and in, in both access and outcomes. And literature like this helps us define the problem so that we can come up with solutions. Yeah, I mean, I was still struck by just the low numbers of patients that were accessing care. And this is in an urban medical center in New York. What does it say about the rest of the country if this center is still seeing just 5.2% of patients who are seeking care with another language and 8% who speak Spanish? That's a really low population. So 406 participants in total. So really low numbers of patients who speak other languages that are seeking care. Does it give any um, perspective? Is that different than other, I dare say, elective medical care? It wasn't shared. The um, article didn't go into depth in that in the background. But I would go out on the limb and hypothesize that it's probably not different. And I think that our country does have a huge access to care problem that is far broader than infertility. I'll tell you, for, as the person practicing in the mandated state, the insurance mandate doesn't eliminate these disparities. It softens the blow a bit, but there's no shortage of papers that we've published in FNS that have looked at insurance mandates don't really close the gap a hell lot. And we have to think about other reasons why. And I go back, I view this through like a workforce lens. I think there's not a lot of physicians, nurses, and people in the clinics that look like some of these patients. And they have a hard time getting their foot in the door because they just don't know who to see or they're worried about seeing someone who's not going to understand them or not understand some of the cultural nuance to to reproduction. And as someone who speaks Portuguese and Spanish, I'll tell you what, I see someone and I greet them in Portuguese or Spanish, it's a very different encounter for them. And sometimes I'm the very first person that they're ever having a healthcare encounter with in their own language. I have to think that that matters for their outcomes. Their ability to participate in care is a little bit better. Their ability to make the visits and understand really how to do the timed intercourse around your letrozole and clomid is a little bit better. I have my end of one experience, but some of this is, I think, a workforce issue too. Well, I think it's not just those who are seeking care, but I think it, it also speaks largely to the issues of dropout. 
So in this study, they saw higher rates of dropout in LEP patients. And I think that that really speaks to that experience factor that you really may not feel invested in your care, or if you feel alternatively that your physician is not invested in your care, you're less likely to stick with it. And so I think like, again, two points, one, a really long duration of infertility is associated with poor outcomes in all patients who are seeking IUI. And so the the main difference in this study is really that the English speaking patients had a shorter duration of infertility and therefore a better prognosis with a lesser aggressive therapy. And then the second is that IUI and all fertility treatment success is cumulative. And so the more you pursue care and the more cycles you ultimately end up doing, the higher your likelihood of success. And so if you have a higher dropout rate, then you're going to have a lower cumulative success rate. And so I think that by increasing access to care and increasing engagement to care, we're going to be able to better serve different populations. And I I actually feel like this may be a wonderful application when we talk about technology as some of these language interpreters and perhaps the ability to generate patient education materials in different languages will become easier with more AI-generated software. Great. And Eve, we're sticking again with you and we're sticking with ART articles. Tell us about in vitro maturation rescue ICSI. Does it work? Should we do it? (laughs) Well, spoiler alert, it works, but it works in very few. And so I think it's up to each lab to discuss what the utilization of resources might be. That's my that's my spoiler alert. So this next article is titled The Developmental Potential of Mature Oocytes Derived from Rescue in Vitro Maturation or IVM. First author, Adi Cooperman Shaney, and senior author, Clifford Liebrach from Crate Fertility in Toronto, Canada. This is a sibling oocyte study. And again, I really liked this. I thought the methods were beautifully done. The objective of this study was to examine the developmental competence of immature oocytes. So from a single oocyte retrieval, they compared the outcome of M2 oocytes at the time of ICSI to GVs and M1s that were recovered at the same retrieval who were then underwent rescue in vitro maturation, followed by ICSI the following morning. Rescue IVM was performed by overnight incubation in stage in SAGE step one media, with the addition of menopure giving both the FSH and LH components. Cycles where at least one M2 was obtained the next day were included in their comparison. And the main outcome measures they looked at were fertilization rate, cleavage rate, blastulation rate, ploidy after PGT, morphokinetic parameters, and pregnancy outcomes. The mean age of patients in this study group was 37 plus minus four years. And I think everyone can appreciate why a study such as this would be conducted. I think as we all know, higher numbers of eggs at the time of retrieval often lead to higher numbers of blastocysts which can improve the cumulative pregnancy per oocyte retrieval. I will say I think most clinics discard oocytes that are not mature at the time of retrieval, but in vitro maturation may possibly be a useful addition to increase the number of usable blastocysts. So this was a retrospective cohort study. This clinic routinely does in vitro maturation, and they looked at 182 patients from 200 cycles with a total of 2,288 oocytes that were retrieved. Of these, at the time of ICSI, 1,056 were mature, so they had a 46% maturation rate, which admittedly is a little bit low, and they had 333 M1s and 292 GVs that they deemed suitable for overnight incubation, so not all M1s and GVs were used. The fertilization rates were similar when they compared these sibling M2 oocytes, to the rescue IVM oocytes. However, cleavage rates and blastulation rates were significantly less. Blastulation rates were 24% versus 60% in their lab. And then for those blasts that were biopsied, the euploid rate was comparable to that of matched sibling M2 oocytes. During the study period, 18 patients had 20 FETs from these rescue IVM oocytes. From that, there were seven pregnancies and three live births. 625 oocytes underwent rescue IVM in order to achieve three live births. 
So I think back to my spoiler alert on utilization. I think it's a really interesting study. And I think in an ideal world, we should be doing everything possible to maximize the live birth outcomes from a single retrieval cycle. However, practically speaking, I think we have to ask the question of whether this is good utilization of embryology time. I know we had looked at this with our own data as we had formerly incubated M1s overnight And ultimately, we abandoned the practice as we had very few live births over a 10-year period of doing this. But for those patients who did have a live birth, this technology was incredibly important. Um, And I personally had a patient in our practice who was one of the very few who had a live birth after failing multiple cycles at multiple centers. So I do understand the tremendous potential of this. But as we talk about increasing demand placed on our embryologists, the need for more embryologists, the need for more cycles, I think it really brings to light the question of the demand being placed on our embryologists and is this a good utilization of resources? Micah, Pietro, Kurt, what do you think? I really like your spin about is this good for our lab? Does this make sense for our patients? I think that's a really thoughtful way to approach some of these technologies that are we want to work and we want to work at scale but really work for so few patients. Could we be better utilizing those embryologists for more patients to improve outcomes elsewhere? This is a, an argument that's gone on for a long time. Should we spend a lot of resources for incremental gains for a small amount of people when those resources could be spent on the paper we just said before, helping a lot more people with disparities or getting actually good prognosis into IVF that need it? Um, our field tends to focus on the technology and not the access to care. That's big debate, political debates, a lot of debate, but this is an example of the, the former, you know, how much how much energy is it really worth it to help with, you know, one other pregnancy? Yeah. We've also looked at it in our practice, Eve, with over, you know, 10 years of data and thousands of patients in the live birth for in our program was a fraction of 1%. And so we also abandoned it about five years ago, just from the exact reason that you're saying the uh, the amount of work for the yield was just too low at a global scale for a practice, understanding that we want to maximize every patient's eggs potential. And, and by the way, I'm not arguing utilitarianism that we should give up the bad prognosis patient for only the good ones. I'm just saying that there's a debate about resources and time and energy that ha- that has to be had. I mean, every patient should deserve the best treatment they can get. But in this case, we've been struggling with this technology for a while, and it just really hasn't seemed to pan out. Yeah, and maybe this is where automation in the lab may revive this particular technology. If you could throw these oocytes in a microfluidic system overnight, have ICSI automatically performed the next morning and have low yield, something that was previously low yield and high workload be taken off the hands of the embryologists, then maybe. Um, And so I'm not saying that we should never do it, but maybe this is a a good example of something where automation may have the potential to ultimately improve success rates. I have just a style question. You you all are expert writers and I enjoy reading everything you write. Uh, This study had, I think, over 25 acronyms in it. If if you're going to use that many acronyms, should you have a glossary? Uh, One of them was capital BL lower S for blastocyst. Should we use acronyms for single words? Uh, So what is just from a good writing stylistic standpoint, what do we recommend, uh, Kurt or others to your fellows when you're teaching them how to write? Well, I'm on a crusade where you should get rid of acronyms that are non-standard, especially in the abstract of the paper. But again, obviously, I'm not perfect that this one slipped through that had far, far too many acronyms. So Thanks for bringing it up, Mike. I don't know how to get 100% compliance with it, but I think the acronyms distract from the paper. And if you really want your paper to be well-read and go beyond our audience, you have to, it has to be readable. I mean, only you understand your acronyms, and then you've lost your generalizability and other people are not going to read your paper. Yeah, and I think that the rationale for it, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you both, and I, I hate it. I think it makes it really difficult to read. But I think the rationale for it is that you're decreasing word count, which I can appreciate when you actually have a print journal that has limited space. But I think my bigger question is, why are we limiting word count when we're electronic and space is no longer constrained? Readability. Good scientific paper should be concise and you should choose your words carefully and not be verbose. So you shouldn't need more than 3,500 words to present a research study and if it really has complex methods or things, and you know that can be supplemental 
information. I think acronyms are a shortcut to not taking the time of you know writing concisely. Yeah, just back to your point, Kurt, when I read this paper, I spent over 50% of my time searching through it to find out what the words meant, uh, because I would forget with that many acronyms. So it just made it, it made it harder for me to understand what they were trying to communicate, the science they were trying to communicate. And that should be the goal for the, the writers. Off topic, but just a tidbit for fellows out there who are listening. Good writing tip. Pietro, we're moving on to our last one. We're going to talk about a uh, research letter and trends in infertility in the U.S. Thanks, Micah. And the plug for readers who are hearing this word research letter and wondering what this format is, this is a newer format in fertility and sterility that allows people with kind of uh, one or two salient findings that they've presented maybe at a meeting in an abstract form and are trying to get a paper published, but don't have kind of the meat and bones for a full expansive 3,500 word paper there's really one or two interesting things that are worth kind of sharing. This is the great format for that kind of paper. Much fewer words, much tighter kind of uh, categories to write in, but a nice format for people who are looking for that avenue. And this is an, and this is a nice paper. This is a paper that's looking at something called the National Survey of Family Growth. And if you've listened to this podcast, I've talked about this before. We see data from this uh, data set periodically, but it's a nationally representative sampling of men and women between the ages of 15 and 49 that has been going on in some form or another since 1973. Um, it's an amazing data set that's cataloged information on pregnancy, birth, marriage, cohabitation, infertility, contraceptive use, and a host of other variables that have kind of expanded over time. There's a recent paper that looked at data from this National Survey of Family Growth between 1982 and 2010 that kind of had a bombshell statement that I ended up reading about in, uh, I think it was the Inquirer, the, the, the Daily Mirror, some non-academic publication. Infertility prevalence has remained stable since 1955. And a lot of us in our field were like, huh? That's kind of funny. Um, what do you mean it's stayed 9%? So that, that caught a lot of national attention, that statement. The author, authors of this study said, you know, let's relook at that statement, but let's look at it in a kind of more nuanced and delicate way. This is a wicked smart group of sociologists from Western Michigan University, and they looked at not only the simple prevalence estimate that's reported, but also how such trends either parallel or diverge from treatment utilization, how they may vary by ethnicity and race, and even socioeconomic status. And they did this with more recent data. They looked at data starting as early as 1995 up until 2019, the most recent uh, data set that was published from the CDC. Interestingly, they found that the top line finding was the same. There were no significant changes in the predicted probability of infertility between survey cycles and across this 25-year period. But they also looked at kind of that nuance that I talked about. They found that treatment seeking increased between 1995 and 2002, and then again between 2011 and 13 and 2013 and 2015 cycles. So people are accessing care for this 9% rate of infertility. But there was also some trends amongst certain groups. So white women tended to seek care a little bit more commonly, but not consistently over the study period. And women with higher levels of education, again, a trend, but not a consistent or sustained pattern over 25 years. Now, on the flip side, um, they actually didn't find any changes in underserved groups seeking treatment for infertility more or less during this great 25-year period. So all in all, there's not a, a, a new finding here in this update with more recent data, but I think kind of rounds out the story. It's not just how common is infertility, it's how common is infertility and how often are we treating it? How often are people accessing care and which groups are accessing it more or less often? Kurt, since we've talked a little bit about this data set before, this National Survey of Family Growth, put your biostats hat on for, uh, for a second and tell us a little bit about the power of a data set like this that has kind of asked a similar set of questions over 25 year period and has sampled randomly across the United States with response rates as high as 65 to 70% for a survey that was mail-in but is more recently electronic. Do you geek out about data like this? Is this something that your biostats hat is like, oh my gosh, we could be answering so many questions. Why aren't we asking more? This is the classic balance between amount of data and how good is the data. So you're, you're balancing the amount of data and the, the scope of the data versus the granularity of it. So you can ask big questions and trends, but you really can't get very specific into the answers because the way the question has been answered is different, what people are thinking is different. So, I mean, it's a great epidemiologic tool, but it's probably not a panacea, but it, it is a nice complement to have really big trends compared to the micro data we often see in the journal. Great. Well, this was a wonderful discussion today. We we geeked out, we nerded out a little bit. Pietro pointed out some wicked smart people. I hope you say that about me someday, Pietro. That was a glowing uh, comment. We talked about controversial topics. We talked about hot science, cutting edge things. 
Uh, we really enjoyed it. When next you see us, we will be live at ASRM. So come by, listen to us recording the podcast. Please come at the Monday of ASRM and listen to Journal Club Global as we talk about the association of ovarian reserve and aneuploidy. Is it a just a quantity issue with low ovarian reserve or is it also a quality issue? We'll be discussing recent papers on that. We look forward to seeing you all at ASRM in New Orleans. Thank you, guys. Very good discussion. We covered an awful lot of very disparate material in today's section. So uh, I hope you all enjoy listening to it. We'll see everyone in New Orleans. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.